My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in two ways. Number one is you can go to iTunes and write a brief review. Or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Professor Francesca Ferrando. Francesca teaches philosophy at New York University, and she is a leading voice in the field of post-human studies. Her latest book, which I just finished reading, is called Philosophical Post-Humanism, and in my view, it is by far the best book that I have ever read on topics related to transhumanism, uh, maybe post-humanism, even maybe humanism. I think everyone who is either calling themselves already a transhumanist or is considering, you know, joining in one shape or one way or, or another the transhumanist community absolutely must read Francesca's book. I think it is, to me, quite honestly, it is shocking how ambitious it was in its scope. It goes further, wider and deeper into a diversity of topics you would never expect that it would go. Uh, it does so very well, very eloquently. Um, and, you know, if there's any one downside of her book is the fact that that book would require you to put, to put some work. It would require you to be open-minded and it, it will not give you everything digested and ready to go, but it would actually make you work to get the message and the, in, in, in all its richness, diversity, and complexity that Francesca has presented for us. So, uh, without further ado, maybe I should just say, welcome to Singularity FM, Francesca. I'm already a fan of your book and of you, of course. Nicola, thank you so much for your invitation, for your kind presentation, and thank you so much for your work. You've been a real, a real pioneer in these, uh, in these topics of uh, post-transhumanism, interviewing really interesting people who are working in these fields. So I'm, I'm also a big fan of your work, and I would like to thank you for your vision, for your work, and for your intellectual honesty. I like that you are rigorous, honest, that you are very clear, that you really want to get to, to the core of things. So I uh, really would like to thank you for everything. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I really appreciate it. I, I've done my best. But, you know, that's another reason why I loved your book so much is because I've been doing research on this book. Uh, I mean, on, on, on my work, even before I started my podcast and my, and my website. So probably around I started maybe since 2004 or so. And so that's like, let's say, 16, 17 years. I was amazed how much I learned from your book, especially how much you were able to put in only maybe the core of the book was, I think, about 190 pages or so. And I think and it had a, a tremendously rich and, and big uh, bibliography and reference notes and things like that. So it's very rigorously researched academic book. But how densely you, you, you made it, it's kind of like Nietzschean in a way, uh, very rich, every paragraph you could ponder for a very long time. And that's why I said the book requires a lot of work from us, because I honestly had to reread paragraphs and pages multiple times. Uh, they're so profound. And I, I'm going to be rereading your book again. That's absolutely for sure. Uh, so... <laughs> 
But it's very interesting, Nicola, you said that because that's precisely the scope of the book and you got it completely. So it's almost like a puzzle where each piece is independent. So you don't need to put the whole puzzle puzzle together. Let's see that you're let's say that you're very interested in transhumanism. You can just follow, you know, the navigational tool and just read about transhumanism, and you are not uh, caught into reading everything else. Now, if you want to read everything, of course, it's, it's an interesting um, panoramic scenario of what's happening philosophically about uh, what I call the posthuman uh, paradigm shift, eh, which are so many different movements. But also, like you said, if you just if you are just interested in a topic, you can just really focus on that without. Uh, going into everything else. And that's also was the scope of Nietzsche. He was very much into aphorism. And I, I love Nietzsche. He was one of the few philosophers who, who really changed my life. So, you know, with Nietzsche, really, you can just read one part and that's it. It's not that you need everything else. Of course, you can read everything else, but I, f- I find uh, so much inspiration out of his work. So I'm really, you know, very honored by the fact that you mentioned his work. And I think that you completely got it right. Like it's, uh, it's, it's very dense and it's very clear. And if people want to just read a part, I always tell everyone, just you don't need to read everything. Of, of course you can, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's based on question and answer. So you can keep going, but you don't have to. So that's, you know. I think you got it completely right the, the way the book is written. Yes, but but let me push back a little bit here because I think one of the great strengths of your book here is precisely the fact that it would allow transhumanists to situate the idea of transhumanism, the the, the community, both in the historical context, also in the philosophical context, in the ideological context in the sort of like theological context, even if you will, in the etymological context, even in so many new, in the postmodernist context, which is very important, in the post-anthropocentric context, which is very important, in the post-dualistic context, which is very important. And I think you can't really get transhumanism if you're not having all those contexts at least somewhere in the background. And another thing which I was really impressed by, since I'm, you know, a, a major fan of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, you have very rich, uh, rich Greek. Uh, I don't know about Latin, but maybe Latin too, due to your uh, background, which we will start uh, talking about very soon. Uh, but very rich background in the etymology of both the Greek and the Latin of all the terms that we're using and we're going to be discussing today. Things like transhumanism, posthumanism, anthropocentrism, technology even, humanism even. You know how many books I've read on the topics of humanism, uh, of transhumanism, and they never even touch on humanism. They never even ask the question, what is the human? They jump straight onto the transhuman or they just touch it in a single uh, sentence as if it's so dead obvious and we have nothing to consider anymore about it. Uh, And you go to extreme lengths. I was so impressed. You go to such a great length to discuss the importance of the origin and the meaning and the problems surrounding the meaning of being human as a foundation of anything that could later on be built upon that as a transhuman or posthuman or anything else like that. Like, see, I, <laughs> I can rant about your book forever. I'm, I'm so impressed. But, you know, I think you are, you're very right uh, uh, about 
point in this aspect of uh, transhumanism, because I think that transhumanists are uh, very good at uh, having visions about the future. The problem that I see with the movement is that they don't really look at their own roots. So they don't really explore where they come from and what are the issues with the present and with the past. And by not doing that, you are running the risk of bringing the same issues with different you know, addresses to the future. So that's what, one of my criticisms to transhumanism. It is that it's a, it's a plant with so many interesting flowers and, and fruit and, and, and foliage, but the, the roots of that are weak because they don't really explore. They, they think, oh, that's gone, let's move on. But it's, time is not linear. And that's an issue with transhumanists. They think they can just, and I say that because I consider myself a posthumanist and I'm going to go into this later on. But transhumanists really jumps to the future thinking that, you know, the past and the present are kind of, you know, in this linear approach that you can just get rid of them and move on. But, but existence is not like that. L time is not linear. Time is a cycle, if you want, or it's a spiral, or, you know, that we are our present and our past and our future is already here. So there is no way we can think of the future without acknowledging the past and the present. And that's one, you know, I, I do have a, a lot of uh, respect for transhumanism, but that's a real thing. Like you are building a whole movement with no roots. And the risk is that a, a big wave of, uh, of, of new social awareness is going to, you know, like... That intellectual poverty actually has pushed me away from transhumanism in the last three or four years, because there's a very... Uh, kind of a religious uh, zealot wing in it. There's also a, a wing with, and, and and generally, I think very few people in the transhumanist community are sort of educated on the epistemological, intellectual, even metaphysical origins and lineage uh, of of the movement and the dangerous. And and you you gave a very good metaphor here with the fruits, but but I want to put it in a different way, perhaps to say that the danger is that the community, which may be very powerful in the future, may end up repeating many of the age-old mistakes precisely because of this sort of poverty of awareness and education of the past historical, ideological, metaphysical, epistemological, even religious and theological. You know, many people don't even know about cosmisms, uh, cosmism and Tsiolkovsky and how all that had huge influence like uh, Russian Eastern Orthodox uh, Christianity had a huge impact on transhumanism today. So they repeat the same sort of memes without ever being aware they're doing it and without being aware of what the costs, the dangers and the opportunities are of doing that. And your book is like, you know, perfect nutcracking machine. You know, Derrida said that deconstruction is about finding juicy fat nuts and cracking them up. Well, congratulations, because your book honestly found the, the, the juicy nut of transhumanism and cracked it right up. And that's that's something you should be proud of and cracked it up in a good way so that if people actually put the work to go and read your book carefully and reread paragraphs and pages like I usually I do 170 pages in a few hours. I read your book for probably two and a half, three days simply because I had to reread so many times. And if people invest that kind of time, I would claimed it would be easy for them to discard the shells and get the juicy nutty parts which are all the goodness of transhumanism without having you know all breaking teeth and, and repeating mistake on the shells uh, and, and all that stuff 
I think you're so right, Nicola. I think you're so right. And that's why I would like to say that I'm not against transhumanism. I think that transhumanism is an interesting vision. And I think that on so many levels, things are going to happen. You know, for instance, uh, uh, radical life extension is already happening. If you look at the Romans, since you were mentioning, mentioning the Romans, the Romans used to die around 30, 40. And that age, you 50, were, you were considered very, very old. Nowadays, someone who is 50 is considered middle-aged. Uh, so, you know, we are already radically extending our life. So from here to go to 800 or 1,000 or whatever, like Aubrey the Grey, he doesn't go into limit. He said just unlimited lifespan. I think that that's absolutely possible, you know? So I'm not saying that what transhumanism, because there are also other people who are really just against transhumanism, even within the posthuman movement. Uh, that's not me. I recognize a lot of uh, visions and a lot of clarity that transhumanists have around the, the future. But I also see a lot of the weaknesses, and that's you are very, very correct in what you said. I think exactly uh, what you said, it's, uh, I shared it fully, that if we don't see the issues of the present and of the, of the past, we are going to repeat them in a different uh, shape. So for instance, maybe in the future, even if, which we'll see, but even if we don't have some type of human discrimination, we are going to have other discriminations based on uh, species based on biological versus technological. So if we don't look at those big issues, we're going to repeat them over and over and over with different groups of people. And when I say people, I don't just mean humans, because people now, persons, is really expanding to comprehend non-human animals, te technological beings, think of Sophia the robot. So really, persons in this sense of expanded way that is not just strictly bi biological or strictly human. But we need to look at the issues of our society in order to, to really uh, embody and manifest a real paradigm shift, not something that is just changing you know, the uh, outfits and the, the way you know, people look, but also how we exist. Because at the end of the day, that to me is the most important question and is the most important goal of our life. How are we existing? What kind of life are we manifesting for us and for everyone around us? So very right, you know, if we don't look at those, yes, transhumanism is going to happen in many ways, but the main issues are not going to be solved in any way. Yeah, let's, let's you know, I, I jump right in just because of my enthusiasm and, and sort of like shocking, like I was literally shocked and all by your book. And, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who just dishes compliments to my guests. And, and you know, I turned down many uh, interviewee uh, interviews because I didn't like their book. Uh, others, you know, I have said, uh, you know, on the record that I'm not a big fan and th that because their book was immature or whatever. And I'm not putting a claim that that's the truth, objectively speaking. I'm just putting the claim that that's my opinion and that's my perception of what their work is. But I is just like I, I, I utterly love your book. I think honestly, it's the best book on the in the on the and it's not really a transhumanist book. It's a posthumanist book. And yet it's the best transhumanist book. That's the paradox in it. Uh, so anyway, let's just zoom out here and, and slow down things a little bit and start from the beginning. Who is Francesca Ferrando? I would say he's um, someone who, is, who, who wants to be aware of herself. That's, you know, from, I guess, day one in my life. Just want to be aware of who I am in whatever situation I am. If I am a child, which I was a child, you know, things that people tell you, can you just accept them or not? You know, and I remember being a child 
And, uh, you know, I had uh, an interesting upbringing. I was, uh, I was raised in Italy uh, in an interesting city, Turin, where there are many different souls. And uh, there is the Christian souls, there is the communist souls, there is the socialist souls, there is the fascist souls, there is all kinds of things. But especially, you know, there is a big uh, working, uh, working uh, history of uh, people coming from the south to work at Fiat, which was the main industrial... It's an uh, industrial manufacturing center. Also, also. And so there was all these aspects, but I remember being very young. And so my, my father didn't care about religion. My mother cared, uh, you know, they had different visions. But I would go just because it's, as an Italian, you would go to church. And I remember, you know, being told, you know, ask, you know, who created us? And people would say God. And then you ask them, but who created God? And they would say, oh, no one created God. And I was a child and they would say, okay, but why no one created God and God created us? This is a child already thinking that doesn't really make sense to me. So I remember from a very young age, you know, being really wanting to be aware of things, I guess in the, in the more honest way I could, and also enjoying my existence because it's all we have. It's, uh, you know, now going to Hinduism, it's Lila, the big cosmic game. But it is a serious game because it's all we have. And if we forget it is a game, that's when things start to get really uh, nauseating. And eh? when we are lost in our jobs or in our uh, idealism or in our missions, and we lose, you know, perspective of the present. So I think, you know, I am someone who, in whatever situation I am, which is constantly changing, I'm always trying to really understand who I am. Very interesting. So you, you're a curious child. I was curious and subversive. So I, I was the kind of kid who wasn't so much interested in God, but in grade one, I told all my classmates that there is no Santa. And that led to this big debate about is there Santa or is there no Santa? And so uh, the, the, my classmates who were arguing that there is Santa said, okay, let's ask the teacher. So we went to ask the teacher and the teacher said, well, ask your parents. And I was scandalized because to me, the teacher didn't do his job because he didn't say the truth, which I, what I perceived was the truth, which of course is there is no Santa. And then on the next meeting with the parents, some parents complained that their kids were traumatized because of me telling them <laughs> that there was no Santa and that that's all an invention of the adults. <laughs> so I was like a lot more subversive. <laughs> and it's so interesting you're saying that because I am a mother also of a young child and she's three. And now is when, you know, all these, I call like social mythologies come into the picture and are, you know, given directly to the child as if they should bring this, you know, this uh, thing and move it to the future. And I ask myself, do I want to give this to my child? And I think I don't because it's, it's a lie and children don't need that. You know, like I, for instance, didn't grow, I did not grow up with Santa. We grew up with uh, like little Jesus. Other people grew up with like Saint Lucia. Other people grew up with like the little mouse bringing gifts. I mean, there are all kind of, you know, social mythologies out there. But of course the question is, can you really start an honest relationship with a young mind telling lies? And my answer is not. So, you know, like we have different visions in my family. Some people think that is a nice, cute story to live, which I'm not against. But, you know, when she asks me, I always say, you know, it, it, I, 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 I cannot say that is. Okay. When she asks me, I say, it's whatever pretty much you believe. I mean, it's not that there is Santa or not. For me, I tell her there was no Santa because when I grew up, there was no Santa, you know. But for you, there is Santa if you want to believe in Santa. So I think that in the end, the social mythology should be clarified as mythologies, should not be given as truth. 
because I think that uh, you're already starting young minds to believe in lies and then they go on all their life trying to dismantle this constant life that they're given. And I think it is really important to be brave enough to really look into yourself for every little action that you do, not just what we write, but how we behave. How are we as, as citizens, as uh, members of a bigger community, uh, as parents, as sisters or brothers or, or you know, or mothers or, or fathers or whatever? And then really ask what you should be doing. And I think that the way to go is not just what you're supposed to be doing, which for instance is yes, something exists, but say what you really think that you should be doing as an honest person that wants things to be different. So I think that... Uh, it's a good example that you bring because I think that uh, a post-transhumanist education should start from day one. And again, it's very interesting to be a mother, not only because it's an incredible experience, but because you realize how much we already push into beings that are not even here yet. Because when she was already in the belly, she would get in all these gifts that were supposed to be for a girl. And it's ridiculous because a girl or a boy, it's not that they... It's not that they think differently, you know, they are different beings, like everyone is different. And I think that it's very interesting how our society really pushes from not even day one, but before day one of someone existing, social mythologies that then are really hard to dismantle and then that people take as final truth. So I think that a, a, a non-honest, post or transhumanist should be always square themselves, should be always ask themselves, is that fine? Is that okay? Is this something that I want to bring not only to the future, but to the present and be able to say, no, no, with, with kindness and with joy, not with anger, because, you know, society is also a lot of fun and society is also taking care of us in many ways. But yes, we are part of it and we can change it. So it's not that everything that is given is something that we should just take. There is a, an interesting story of the Buddha with this person going to him with so much anger. And he said, if someone comes to you with a gift, which is full of garbage, should you accept it? And this person say, no. Okay, so just take it, your anger and go away because that's not a gift that I want. So it's not that any gift you should just accept. If someone come and give you, you know, like a, as a gift, you know, garbage from the nuclear station, you say, you know, thank you so much, but I don't want this. I, I you know, you can keep it for yourself. So I think the same goes with society. Of course, it's important to be grateful and to be respectful and honoring others and their own beliefs. But it's also very important to honor your own intellectual vision, your own uh, existential honesty, and your own uh, message to humanity and, and post-humanities. Eh? Because I think that we obviously we're not just human. We are in a planet. We are the planet in connection with plants and robots and, and non-human animals, biosphere, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and another reason why I love uh, your work and, and who you are so much is that you know, after I read the, your book, I, I watched a bunch of your interviews and you live your message. And, and what you just told me about your daughter is a perfect example of the praxis that you finish your book with of uh, what you call post-humanist agency, which we're going to probably talk about towards the end of our conversation. So already with your three-year-old daughter, you're kind of setting up sort of that kind of post-humanist agency, okay, mommy, you can choose whether you want to believe there is Santa. So mommy has decided there is no Santa for mommy, but you can decide if there is Santa or there isn't Santa for you. So you're already kind of 
putting that idea of the, of the of the agency there, which is like really commendable, and that's why you're talking about the posthumanist practice. Uh, praxis. But um, let me uh, go back again here and and ask you. So, okay, so you're this very curious child. Where this? Where where did and how did philosophy come into your life? So I was uh, lucky enough to be studying philosophy at a very young age uh, because I I was in Italy and the educational system is excellent. And I in my high school I decided to study uh, classical studies. So I started to study philosophy when I was 14 year old and uh, when I was 13 That's year old. That's why you're so good at the ancient Greek and the, and the Latin stuff. Yeah, so we st I studied five years of ancient Latin and ancient Greek between uh, age 13 and 18. So yeah, those wow. five years, yeah. And that's something that it's uh, a real existential uh, gift for me. I know that everyone should study that. It's but a foundation for everything in my view. Like it's it's so good. You can do science, physics, chemistry, philosophy, literature, a anything almost with that foundation. You can do anything. Yeah, I think it is an excellent foundation. Of course, you know, there are other foundations. You can study Sanskrit or ancient Chinese, but someone based in Italy that was based on whatever you call is a Western canon for me studying. And to be sincere, and these are the time people didn't like that, but I loved, loved ancient Greek and ancient Latin. I was not. Too much of a big fan. I also come from the north, which was also a history of invasion. So Rome invaded the north. But apart from that, I, I love the, the Greeks. And as an Italian, you're supposed to love the Romans. So, I mean, they're all, they were all good. And also now, of course, uh, you know, Roman literature is wonderful as well. But let's say the Greek literature and philosophy and the tragedy and, you know, and, and, and the myth, mythology, had such an impact on me, such an impact on me. I got so fascinated with especially myth mythology. Mythology really, it's almost like a fable, but done in, in a very interesting way. Of course, now with the eye of a much more, you know, mature person, I see also that Greek mythology comes from patriarchy. You know, it's not just mythology, it comes from specific viewpoints. But still, as a child, these, these Medusa and these beings that had, had, were half human, half non-human, that were living in the sea and in the, in the, in the, in the, in the sky and... Uh, it was so fascinating. So I loved mythology and I loved, uh, I loved of course, uh, being able to translate. So we would have, we would translate ancient texts, you know, like Plato and Homer and all these things. So that was incredible. Um, that was really, really a great gift. And that's also when I studied very young philosophy, including Nietzsche. And Nietzsche had a, a real impact in my life. So literally, you know, I remember Nietzsche studied because it was contemporary when I was 17 year old or 16 because we started in a linear way, you know, from the ancient uh, Greek philosophy. We did not study Indian or Chinese, but we started with ancient Greek philosophy, you know, and passing all through the Western canon until contemporary. And I remember when I studied Nietzsche, Nietzsche to me was uh, someone who gave me tool to exist. And I remember, you know, the notion of the eternal recurrence and they took it as a real tool for my life. So if I was going to live this life again, over and over again, the same, everything exactly the same. Would I say yes? Would I say yes to this moment? Or would I say yes to what I did yesterday and tomorrow? And being so young, I was 16, and having that tool, it helped me so much in my life. And I remember telling other people about Nietzsche and, you know, people who were older in Italy and didn't really have so much time or didn't 
you know, didn't choose so much in their, in their life. And they were horrified. They said, oh my God, that's a terrible idea of your life coming back over and over the same. Of course, it's, a, it's a just a, a, an intellectual thought. Some people say that he really believed that, but that's not the point. The point is that as a, as a thought for you to decide in your life what you want to do, if your life was going to come over and over exactly the same. So it's your final work of art. It's your existential work of art. It's so powerful. And I was really lucky to study when I was 16. So I really spent the rest of my life asking me the, the question. So, you know, every time I'm not sure, I say, would I relive this over and over again? And if the answer is not, that, that might be something I don't need to do, you know? But if the answer is yes, then it's something that I need to do. So, yeah, Nietzsche had a huge impact. So I was really, really honored that you kind of caught that in my text because he had, uh, I think, he, as a philosopher, he was the one who had more of an influence in me. But, you know, as philosophical trends, you know, feminism, uh, posthumanism, uh, you know, there are other isms that had an influence. But as a single philosopher, Nietzsche was the one that was like, boom, it was like a bomb in my life. Yeah, and he was also a classic scholar. Uh, so you share that with him too. And me and you, we share our love. And, and, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, the first books that I read when I was, you know, six and seven years old were the ancient Greek myths and legends. So I wasn't reading fairy tales and, you know, princesses and princes and, and you know, the, the evil witch and that kind of stuff. I mean, my mom was reading that stuff to me. But I was reading ancient Greeks uh, myths and legends and, you know, Theseus and Perseus and Medusa and Zeus did this and all that. This is what I read and reread, you know, so many times and, and Hercules uh, and his feats and all that stuff. Jason and the Argonauts. Like, so we share that. Uh, but let's let's shift you know I, I as i told you i think i can talk to you for so many hours but i know our time is limited here so let's shift our attention to your book because it's so rich in material for proper discourse that that you know i'm going to have to invite you uh in another six months or something back again to fill in the gaps that we would inevitably have to leave today or or build upon the foundation that we set up today so first of all your book is called Philosophical posthumanism. So let's start with that term. What is posthumanism, first of all, and why philosophical? Why not just posthumanism? Thank you so much, Nicola. So um, can I take a step back before we go into that? Of course. So I call this era the posthuman era because uh, it is an era in which many, many people coming from many, many different disciplines. And in this, you're great. You've been interviewing scientists and people coming from theoretical physics and philosophers and cyberneticists. I mean, you are the example of that. You know, in order to really understand the posthuman, it has to be interdisciplinary. Eh? So, but all these people are really asking one question, which is, what is the human? And all of them are agreeing that in the 21st century, the human can no longer be described as something static, as something clear, as something closed, but as, going back to Nietzsche, Nietzsche would say, as a bridge, something open that is constantly evolving in many different ways for many different reasons. So uh, in this sense, we have a real movement in philosophy, which I call it to be uh, comprehensive posthuman. Now, in this movement, there are many different voices to the point that some voices are almost saying things that almost contradict each other. But that's the beauty of that. 
because it's happening. And I always bring the example, for instance, of humanism, Renaissance humanism, which obviously at the time was not called humanism, and humanism as a term came later on. And there were so many different voices, and they did not agree with each other at all. But now we study humanism as a movement. And if you see a movement as the ocean, in which there are many different waves and different beings, and of course, but if you think of a movement, movement as something unique and static and you know that everyone agrees, that's not what we're talking about here. So when we're thinking of this era as the posthuman era, it's very exciting because we are doing something that it's happening. So it's not just studying Nietzsche, who as great as he was, he died. And it's not just about studying the Greeks, who as great as they were, they are gone. But it's really being honest and being respectful to our own manifestation because we live in a specific time frame which is, of course, if you go into the uh, canon that we're using, 21st century, planet Earth, and the planet itself, itself is different. We are different. We are living a different kind of life. The planet is different. There are many less, uh, there are less trees. Uh, there is, uh, you know, there is all kinds of things that are different from the ancient Greeks or from the ancient Hindus, etc., etc. So as to be fully aware of who we are, we need to ask the question, who are we right now in the 21st century, in this spatial temporal manifestation. So when we ask this question, of course, the answer is not just copying and paste what uh, other people said before us. And of course, the answer is different because we are all different. We come from different experiences, different location in life, uh, different backgrounds, etc., etc. And it's also, of course, is manifested in the movement itself. So in the movement, you have many different um, schools of thoughts that are also not one but many. For instance, you have transhumanism, which is not one, but many. That's why I always add the S, transhumanisms. And you have liberal transhumanism, democratic transhumanism, extropianism, the singularity of so much there. And then you also have posthumanism, which is also not one, but many. Eh? So posthumanism, of course, the term itself comes from Hassan, 1970, but more as, as a current, as a school of thought, started back in the 90s. And at the time was what would now we define as critical cultural posthumanism, which was based on cultural studies, critical studies, literature. And it was also a response to transhumanism and saying, OK, there are many limitations there. You're not bringing to the conversation all these other issues. For instance, wonderful work by Catherine Hayes, how we became posthuman, in which she really bring to the attention the point of embodiment. Because she's saying, you know, the way transhumanists are going about existence is a, in, a, in the traditional dualistic way of Western thought, in which you can separate the body and the mind and just choose one or the other. Usually in the Western canon, you would choose the mind because the body would consider the less, you know, the dirty, et cetera, et cetera. And so she's, she's bringing this issue in the conversation that we are always embodied. So, of course, now going through some of the points that were already brought along by the critical and, and cultural posthumanism, philosophical posthumanism really develop a philosophical discussion about this and a philosophical inquiry. And so brings, uh, kind of expand the map to the whole uh, rich uh, heritage of philosophy. In that sense, posthumanism locates itself out of the development of postmodernism. And this is very different for transhumanism. In fact, a lot of transhumanists not only don't really acknowledge postmodernism, but they never studied that because they come from Anglo-Saxophone traditions, specifically analytic tradition, England, United States, where postmodernism has not really reached yet. It's coming, 
but is not there yet. Eh? Or some so transhumanists like Natasha Vitamore and Max are openly hostile towards post-humanism, uh, post-modernism, yes. I mean, to, towards post-modernism. Yes, but it's also true that, and I love both of their works, they're excellent minds, but it's also true that they were not trained about this. And I was in, in, a, in, a, in an event with Natasha recently, and she was explaining how difficult and hard are the postmodern concepts. And she's right, because when I started to study postmodernism, it didn't really stick with me. It took me years to really understand the language, to really be part of it. I remember, you know, as a 19-year-old saying, why are, aren't these people talking in a way that you can understand it? And I remember, for instance, liking, liking more like the 70s, Marxism and the feminism of, you know, the second wave, because it was so much clearer. So it took me years. But of course, after you really take, you have to be very patient with postmodernism. But after you do that, it's so enriching. And after you understand, there is no way you can go back. It's almost after you have that realization, there is no way you can just, okay, we can get rid of that. You cannot. To me, postmodernism is kind of like the quantum mechanics of the humanities, if you will. Uh, if you think you understand it, you probably don't. But the very hardness and kind of trickiness and weirdness and strangeness of it uh, is not and should definitely not be a reason for one to dismiss it. And I think I'm afraid that, that Natasha and others are a good example of, of people who have dismissed it. And I hope she's gone uh, beyond that point now. I'm not sure she has, but I hope she has. But people who have dismissed it in the past simply because they haven't, you know, gotten quite, you know, to understand it or they haven't invested the time necessary and the effort necessary to educate oneself about it and to learn from it and, and to see. And as you just said, once you go through that sort of huge initial barrier of time invested, invested effort invested, you can't go back. It's like quantum mechanics. Everything changes. The whole paradigm shifts and you never can go back to Newtonian physics. It's impossible. Precisely, precisely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so deep and there are so many different voices. So that's out of that kind of flourishing of ideas, we have posthumanism. And it's almost like I always say posthumanism is not uh, going beyond postmodernism, but also kind of like... Uh, developing further some of the ideas that were already there in the postmodern tradition. So, of course, once you start deconstructing the human, the point is that uh, some in the postmodern tradition, because it was all new, kind of stayed with the humans. There are some exceptions here, like Foucault, for instance, but he talks about the death of man, which in the post-human tradition, I would really go beyond the dualism of life and death, and as I explained in the book. But in general, a lot of them stayed within the, the human frame. So the, the post-human keep with the deconstruction, deconstructing the notion of the human itself and, and showing that in many traditions, the human has been placed in a dualistic, dichotomic, uh, symbolic uh, location in separation from non-human others, especially non-human animals. But now you can add robots and algorithms and uh, avatars, etc., etc. So that's when, you know, post-humanism really relates to postmodernism, for instance, Deleuze, seeing existence more as a rhizome, more as a big network, and for, of course also Latour, who is more contemporary, or of, 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 of network or a rhizome of elements that connect in not linear ways, in ways that can be chaotic, but as, as Nietzsche said, out of the chaos, the dancing star is born. Eh? So the chaos that brings existence, that brings the manifestation. 
so that's why it's really hard to just uh, go from a linear way, okay, we dismiss the past, we dismiss the present, we just jump into the future. There is no such thing because everything is interconnected in, in ways that sometimes are not every are not even very easy to see the connection, but everything is related. I play a game with my daughter sometimes to, to try to find words that are not related, and it's pretty much impossible. So you can relate any kind of words. For instance, I don't know, bridge and, uh, and, uh, uh, and book, and uh, there is a truck bringing books. And there is always a way to, bridge, to bring a bridge, a connection, but it's really hard to find words, for instance, that are not connected or notions that are not connected. And that's for me is existence because everything is related in some ways or, or others. And of course, this also goes to us as a species. So that's when we really need to think of us interconnected as a species in post-dichotomic ways. And of course, beyond the species as a planet, because at the end of the day, we are not just living on this planet. We are this planet. We are this planet. We, I like Alan Watts. As a metaphor, he was a Zen uh, Western uh, philosopher, and he says, think of a, of, a, of, of a tree and the apples. And now think of the human. And the human is also like an apple that is created by the planet. And I think that's very revealing because often we just think of us living on this planet. But it's to the point that ecology, oikos from Greeks, oikos means house. But we are not just living in the, this house. The house is us and we are the house. And we eat out of the house, we breathe the air of the house. And also if the situation around us gets polluted, we become sick. And the rise of uh, cancer in the 21st century is, is very clear. We are living in polluted areas and that's also it's manifesting in our bodies. So like this idea of not just living somewhere, we are this planet and we may become other planets. If we move to Mars, some people eventually are going to adapt there and you know, generation after generation, they are going to look different and they're going to evolve in different way. And they're going to be part of Mars because now they will be able to live in Mars without external technologies, which is not obviously the case now. That's why we're sending Mars rovers and there are no humans living there. But yeah, so that's uh, the interconnecting aspect of existence. It was really so well clarified by postmodernism. And that's why uh, you you start your book with defining all those isms which we're going to have to go through to to lay down the foundation, but yet you finish your book with sort of like the multiverse, right? So which again is highly unexpected, and yet you do that very well, uh, and it makes perfect sense when you explain why you do that. Uh, okay, so let's go through the other isms here. Uh, and by the way, I'm a big Alan Watts fan, and and I think uh, he was when he was talking about this, he was saying something like, uh, "The universe is the kind of universe that peoples." Uh, so, uh, so it's not like we just have people in the universe, but actually, the universe is the kind of universe that peoples, where people is a verb because it's a universe which produces people, which we are. That's the kind of universe, just like the acorn produces the oak tree, you know? Uh, and that's in the nature of the acorn to become the tree. Uh, and each one of those is perfect. And likewise, the universe that we live in apparently is a peopling kind of universe because it has peopled us, the people in it. So... Anyway, I love Alan Watts. Uh, uh, let's go back here and lay down the foundation for a few other of the isms. So 
we kind of touched a little bit on post-humanism and I'm sure we're going to be coming back to it many times, but let's lay down and differentiate between post-humanism and humanism and transhumanism. Excellent. So I would say, maybe let me start by differentiating post and transhumanism and then we add humanism as a layer. So that's very important. And that was my goal at the beginning of my career because when I started to work on these topics, I realized that there was so much confusion between post and transhumanism. So let's say some people were, you know, really against transhumanism, but they were called posthumanism. Fukuyama is a great example of that. In his uh, book, uh, Our uh, Posthuman uh, Future, he is talking about transhumanism, but he's really talking about, but he used the term posthumanism. So there was so much uh, confusion about these terms. Francis Fukuyama is the intellectual that I love to hate on my podcast. <laughs> I hate his intellectual works ever since he came up with the end of history idiocy, uh, which then produced offshoot ideas like the McDonald's theory of peace, you know, because I came into sort of transhumanism and the singularity from the sort of uh, armed conflict wing from political science. Uh, and back in the day, in the 90s, uh, you know, there was the, the clash of civilization from Samuel Huntington was big at that time in the 90s. Before that, uh, sort of like uh, in the early 90s was uh, Francis Fukuyama's end of history thesis. Uh, and so, uh, and then his views on transhumanism are so terribly confused. Uh, and, and the post-human example where he's actually talking about transhumanism, but he's using the term post-human is a perfect example of that. So I cannot be impartial when it comes to him. I just love to hate him. It's <laughs> terrible. I admit my bias straight up here, but sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, you know what, Nicola, you have a lot of company in this because, for instance, I know that also in the post-humanist uh, community, there is a lot of... Um, I guess disappointment towards Francis Fukuyama because someone who eventually got a bestseller because our posthumous future became a bestseller and he brought a lot of mis misunderstanding about you know the field. So a lot of people don't even want to hear you know about him. I I understand that he as a scholar should have done more work. If you're writing a book about something, you should study a little more. But I also see that he has some interesting points that he developed later on uh, about agency and especially about the idea that when you're talking about biotechnologies, you're really not talking about individual choices, but social choices. And I like when he says, you know, there is uh, an interesting interview where there is uh, Francis Fukuyama and uh, uh, Anders Sandberg, and they, uh, they are at uh, Arus University during a beautiful conference. Arus University is a great center of uh, studies on post and transhumanism. And uh, the professor asked, uh, okay, so I made this appeal yesterday and uh, it's going to bring, I think, you like uh, an enhanced life and more, uh, uh, you know, and a radical life extension. And there are just limited life effects. Would you take it? And uh, Sandberg said, yeah, I just want to know a little more about the side effect. But Fukuyama says, and I love, you know, he look at the, at the professor and says, it's not so much about if I would take it, but if in a close future, people would force to take it because everyone around them is taking it. And I think he's making a very good point when we are talking about these kind of biotechnological enhancements, we are not just talking about individual choices, which is one of the main core aspects of transhumanism. Say, oh, this is just about you, about me. It is based on individual choices. It's never going to be forced on anyone. But society doesn't work like that because all of a sudden, if everyone is taking it 
and everyone is taking, you know, and I, start, I teach these topics with my students at NYU, and they all, all, often say, listen, I would not take it, but if, all, if everyone around me is taking it, and they are getting all A's, and they don't even have to study, you know, or they have to study one day, and I'm getting my A- and I study for one month, eventually I will have to take it, because after, you know, we finish our university degree, I will not get a job, and they will get a job. So it is very interesting that when we are talking about these uh, developments, it doesn't mean that we should, shouldn't develop that. Yeah, of course, that's a whole other issue. It's not that means that we should go against it, but we should be aware that we are not talking about just individual choices. And the same goes for genetic engineering, because if I get my children, you know, the designer babies, they, their DNA become part of the genetic pool of humans. And that's not just their genetic heritage. It becomes everyone's genetic heritage. And they may decide to, you know, travel somewhere when they're older and they fall in love with someone in their country and they have children. We are talking about a species. We are not talking just about individual choices or national choices. So I think that Fukuyama, with all his limitations, I think that he has very good points. So that's why in my case, I still sometimes, you know, when I am, I have organized so many conferences and sometimes I mention, should we invite Francis Fukuyama as a keynote? And I get so much anger. No, are you kidding me? And like, come on, come on. It's also interesting to have him as one of the voices, but usually the, you know, it's really put down in favor of other voices. But I must say that if I, you know, if I can in the future, I would like to have him in a dialogue because I think that he has very good points. Although again, I totally recognize that as an academic who has such a big impact and, you know, a lot of followers, when you write a book, you need to do your own work. And apparently in that book, he, he did not. But that's, that's, you see, a broken clock shows the time right twice a day. Uh, and I don't care how popular you are, how many best-selling books you have and how big your following is, if you're producing garbage like the end of history. Okay, that's like the stupidest thing I've ever heard, the end of history. Okay, the Soviet Union collapsed, we are the winners, capitalism won. It's not only the best story that has ever been told, it's the best story that can ever be told. And as long as we sustain the capitalist system, everything else would be fine around it. But that's the end of the his history because it cannot ever be perfected any more than we have ever perfected it, you see. And then, of course, someone would make the stupid even stupider by saying, look, the McDonald's theory of peace, two countries who have McDonald's never been to war before. How brilliant is this whole concept, right? So, but I mean, so, so you do bear responsibility for things like that and took him 20 years to recognize that as he put it, it was like a mis, and he didn't even call it mistaken. He, he called it misplaced or something like that. So he didn't even quite fully recognize his mistake, even though eventually he kind of admitted to it. But you, in my books, you do bear a responsibility. You have to live your message. You are responsible for what you put out there. And if it's garbage, you're responsible for garbage. If it does more damage than good, you're responsible for that. On the other hand, I am open to conversation and I would have pushed him and I even asked him many years ago, I asked him to come to my podcast, but he turned me down. Uh, which, you know, that's okay. That's, that's his right to do so. But, and I, if he had come, I would have said to him the same things that I'm saying to you right now. Uh, because, you know, we, this is like an open sort of a Socratic type of a dialogue that we have to have. And, you know, if he, his, the power of his idea, ideas overwhelms me, then I'll be willing to change my mind. Uh, you know, so, but, 
until that moment happens, uh, we are where we are. Anyway, let's move beyond Fukuyama. Yeah, just say one more thing about Francis Fukuyama. I also think that it is valuable, though, that someone is able to look back and say, you know what, I was not correct. And then he did, he did it a lot, even politically speaking, you know. He looked back at his career and said, okay, I don't support that anymore. And, he, and that's, unfortunately, it's not as common when people get, you know, recognized, they just, their ego become, you know, the, 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 the force of driving their existence. And I see that with Francis Fukuyama, that's different. I think that he looks back and he's able to say, okay, that was a mistake. That was not correct. There was this, I mean, he does that. So, you know, I, I still, I do see that he is an interested intellectual. And I, I also think that maybe, you know, once he realized all the different layer of post transhumanism, the book would have been different. But the point about, you know, looking at these uh, biotechnological developments, not just something individual, but such, I think that's a really, really important point, And we should all take that into Sure, sure. But it's not his point And it's not an original point. That po point's been brought many times before him and after him in much better ways. It's just that he got the spotlight because his book was a bestseller for a number of other reasons. I mean, even before that, the, the end of history thesis was a bestseller in the academic community of the late 80s, early 90s in the political science departments around the world, right? I never accepted it myself from then day one. To me, as coming from someone from the Eastern Bloc, uh, you know, growing up behind the Iron Curtain and sort of being exposed to all those ideas and and sort of like very which is kind of, you know, my partial and skewed opinion is, but I've been sort of like educated in the richness of history. Someone who comes along and says the end of history to me is kind of like, I'm predisposed to be very skeptical towards that kind of claim from the outset, but that was a popular, popular idea. Maybe one of the most dominant idea in the early 19th in the political science departments. Uh, and that to me is sad. Yeah, and and it says a lot about the the community, by the way, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, and it's also you know I think it's great that you, as a young mind, were able to say you know I don't buy this, I don't take this, I don't believe in this, and that's I think that's the most important thing we can do as educators, which I also think what you do is educating your community. It doesn't mean that if a, if an idea is widely recognized, that is good, not at all. Although I would like to say that on some level, and this is not based on Fukuyama, but the idea of the end of history to me, resonates in only one way, that history is a construction. And it starts with, uh, it's very political, the beginning of history, which is writing. And it starts with a specific symbolic uh, paradigm, which is a, a symbolic paradigm that doesn't go with the Paleolithic and Neolithic ideas, for instance. I'm very fascinated by ancient, ancient history. And I think that, you know, all the prehistory should not be considered prehistory. The only reason why it's considered prehistory because it doesn't go with, you know, specific social understanding of existence, including a paradigm shift based on patriarchy, because 90% of the figurines that we have in the Paleolithic and Neolithic time are figurines that are female. And Maria Gimbutas did a wonderful work on this. So there is some twist on the end of history, which I think that we should recognize that the way we study history, it's a very political construction, and that we should really re revise completely the idea of history and would give as all a much more comprehensive idea of the human, because we start history with Mesopotamia, which the whole paradigm has already happened. And we don't even study the first mythology, which is Inanna, the descendants of Inanna is the first written mythology that we have. We don't study that because it talks about a heroine, a female, that is a goddess, and it is the trinity, tri triple goddess, 
we don't study that. We start with Gilgamesh, which is the first male hero. So for me, when I realized, you know, later on in my life, after being really curious about existence and delving and delving and delving, what a construction is not only society, but also education, I realized that one of my, uh, one of the important things that I can do in my life in really bringing this aspect to the conversation. So maybe for me, the end of history, giving a completely different twist to Fukuyama is the end of this political conception of history and really trying to see where we come from, really from the you know, very ancient time of evolution. And that's for me very, very interesting. So when I study, start, uh, when I teach uh, ancient philosophy, I start with the hominids and you know, the tools that they were using because it defined us as technological beings and this is going to Heidegger, but it's also going to paleontology. Because according to paleontology, we are those animals that use tools out of tools. There are some other primates that do that, but we really expanded on that notion. So when we study, when we bring technology to such an ontological importance, then we realize that history is a construction and that we really need to readdress the whole notion and not starting with ancient Mesopotamia as much as great Mesopotamia was. And if we did, at least we should start a little earlier with the Sumerian. But we always use to start, you know, with a with specific concept of existence that go with our schemata right now, which is short, short window of history. If you look at a big, big clock of history, the Paleolithic time is the major uh, aspect. It's like 90% of our history is humans. And we don't even consider that. So I think that, you know, it is uh, the end of history in that sense, but unfortunately that's not what he meant, but that's what I mean. And I think, yes, we should really reconsider everything that we study because it gives us such a more comprehensive notion of the human and such much less dichotomic. You know, if we start teaching young minds that you are the best because you are uh, female or male or white or black, you're already bringing shadows in their minds. Why are we doing this? Because we don't even realize that we have those shadows in our own minds. So that's when, you know, to be a really honest post or transhumanist that is really reconceiving existence is looking at everything and being able to say, no, I don't need to bring this social disease to the future. I don't need to do that. But if we don't do it, then the social diseases are keep going on. And there are, you know, diseases are not only biological, but also cultural and social. Yeah, and, and we carry those histories that you're talking about in all kinds of suspected and unsuspected ways. So, for example... Recently, 23andMe sent me this message saying, Oh, Nicola, you have, uh, you, you, you have more Neanderthal genes than 83% of our other clients. Uh, and, and, and my wife was like, yeah, right. How is that news to anyone? We know that you're a Neanderthal. And I'm like, yeah, all the philosophy and the intellectual and the academic and all that, that is just smoke and mirrors. I'm deep down. I'm just like a wild Neanderthal. That's about it. Right. So. But it's also very interesting how, you know, the Neanderthals were portrayed in the history of humanity because for many, many years they were portrayed as the less, you know, the brutal, the ignorant, the, you know, the wahoo. To the point that we had at one point a theory which humans killed them all, which is horrible. <laughs> anyway, like it just put you almost happens in a very bad shape, you know, in a very bad uh, position. But now they're really reconsidering everything. So the almost happens not only interbreed with the Neanderthals, but with Obo Florensis, with so, so many other hominids. And also the Neanderthals, they were not that ignorant. They made even music. Now they, they found some flutes apparently that they were using. They had, you know, burial ceremonies. They were very similar to humans. And like you said, we, many of us carry Neanderthals genes, at least probably all people coming from Europe, Asia, a little less in, in, in Africa. 
because there was less, uh, you know, less Neanderthals, you know, like were able to go back. But the point is that, yeah, we're all, that's when we're talking about the rhizome, it's so hard to just say, okay, those are the Neanderthals and this uh, is us. The Neanderthals is us, it's part of us. They never got a sting because part of their DNA is, is us right now. So that's when it's really, for me, uh, very, I have to say, immature to just say, okay, let's just jump to the future. There is no future. The future is here. And the past is here. And the present is here in the moment. So that's very interesting. You're saying. Yeah, and the Neanderthal is like the host of this podcast now for the last 11 years. But but let me bring another false dichotomy or false distinction here. One which, by the way, Kim Stanley Robinson talks about in a most eloquent way that I've seen so far. And that's the false distinction between human and transhuman. And you kind of already touched right upon, upon that by saying that since our birth, or at least the birth of humanity, is kind of characterized by us being the species that use tools made of other tools and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and so therefore, and, and that's how many people define what transhuman is in a way. Uh, and that's why it, it seems that this kind of dichotomy or, or distinction is a false distinction between human and transhuman. Because and many people, uh, such as uh, Ramez Naam, who is a great science fiction author, and he wrote a book before that calling, uh, called More Than Human. He never used the term transhuman once in his book. And when I asked him why not, he said, well... I think we've been we've been what people perceive to be transhuman. I think we've been that, but we only call it human that because we've been doing that since day one. Uh, so the question now is can and or how can we be more than human if that's a possibility and how is that a possibility and all that stuff. But that distinction between transhuman and human is is a false distinction. So can you and that's kind of an invitation to go back. Uh, and 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 sort of again lay down the differences between post-humanism, transhumanism, and humanism, if we can. Of course. So when we so we talked a lot about post-humanism. When we talk about transhumanism, we talk about a very different genealogy, uh, which is uh, it's also interesting how it is constructed because there are many voices that could be brought along in the discussion. But transhumanism itself as a movement really focuses on specific uh, li on a specific lineage, which is usually based on Julian Axley, who was the brother of Aldous Axley, who was the writer uh, of uh, um, our Brave New World. And uh, Julian was a biologist. And he uh, wrote a chapter of uh, New Bottle for New Wine, in which uh, the chapter itself is called Transhumanism, 1959. And in this chapter, he talks about how we now are in charge of evolution. Interesting enough, the DNA was just about at the time kind of being discovered, so he was not even really referring to that, but kind of really as a visionary as he was, kind of foreseeing the possibility of human really taking charge of evolution. He now, was big on eugenics. Exactly, for sure. Although, to be fair, after the whole Nazi Holocaust in Germany, he actually dropped the term as everyone did at the time. But before that, yeah, he was uh, one of the main uh, voices. Uh, and after his older events. brother poked fun at him with his book, uh, Brave New World, of course, because we, this is what brothers do, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so now, there are a couple of things to say here. First of all is that uh, the term transhumanism is to be found first in other writers, including Dante, which is back uh, to the Middle Ages, uh, in which he talks about the human being in the presence of God and being transhumanizing, but also more 
close to uh, Julian Axley with Teilhard de Chardin, because the term itself was, uh, let's say, coined as a transhumanism by uh, Teilhard de Chardin, who was a very good friend of Julian Axley. In fact, Julian Axley wrote the preface for the book in which actually Teilhard de Chardin uh, wrote about the term transhumanism. And uh, so there is definitely a connection. Now, the reason why Teilhard de Chardin is not really mentioned in the transhumanist movement is because he was a Jesuit, he was a Christian. And at the beginning, at least, the transhumanist movement was really trying to underline an atheistic approach that was not based on religion, that was kind of going beyond the religious paradigm. Now it's different. There are you know, religious approaches like Mormon transhumanism and other uh, elements that are connecting you know, transhumanists to different religions. But at least in the 90s, the idea was, okay, we don't need God anymore. We, on some level, Nietzsche and Max Moore, like Nietzsche, Bostrom doesn't kind of Bostrom dismiss Nietzsche, Max Moore does not. Uh, but the idea is that now you, you know, we are the divine beings that we can and we want to be. And in that sense, we have a lot of power because now we have access to all these techniques of, of evolution, including, for instance, uh, um, genetic engineering. So when we look at the genealogy of transhumanism, I always clarify that this is what transhumanists has, have created as the genealogy, but that's normal. Every movement creates their own roots, you know, and, you know, there are many people you can, uh, you know, mention within the postmodern uh, approach, and a lot of posthumanists like to really refer, for instance, to Deleuze, uh, to Derrida. So, of course, every movement brings their own roots and clarify, you know, who you really want to be acknowledged as your ancestors. And so that's transhumanism. So the, 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 who is considered the father of the Turn transhumanism, which is actually not accurate, but it, it has been embraced by the transhumanist movement, is Julian Axley, who was an interesting thinker, but as you said, for instance, uh, was not such a visionary of the present, although he was of the future, but not seeing the real uh, uh, risks with, with uh, a eugenic society. In fact, he was supporting the eugenic movement until, uh, you know, World War II, the end of World War II with all the, you know, with Nazis and the Holocaust. And then he, he never used the, the term again. He never supported again, to be fair to him. Uh, but he was also very much anthropocentric. In fact, if you read this chapter, which is transhumanism, he really says now we are, actually, he doesn't say we as a species, some of us, eh? some of us who are aware of these shifts. So he's not even talking about the whole human species. But he says some of us who are aware of this. The chosen are, few chosen few, are the directors of evolution. And also I should say that he used all the masculine terms, although 1959, we can't ex excuse him because a different type of approach came mostly in the 70s with clearly, you know, gender neutral language should be used. Now, this is 1959. But anyway, he always referred to man, not as humanity, uh, as in instead of humanity, he's always man. And he always says he's and, you know, masculine terms. But anyway, apart from that, he's talking about a few who are aware of the shift, who are uh, who wants to go beyond the, the limits of the human. And he's also very interesting because that's something not that transhumanists underline. No, he underlined a very spiritual aspect of the human, which uh, is not really underlined so much by the transhumanists who always like to see him as a biologist. But he was a big fan of, of the Yard de Chardin. And he was also a very spiritual man. And in the chapter, towards the end, he's really talking about human really... Uh, being the best they can be, spiritually speaking. Uh, so it's very interesting that that aspect, the spiritual aspect, is not so much uh, underlined when they, you know, when transhumanists talk about Julian, Julian Axley. But anyway, going to the first part of the chapter, the chapter is very short, it's two pages. So anyone here who's watching the podcast, you can read it. It's very easy to understand, you know, like it's, it's very linear. It's, uh, it's an interesting chapter, it's a visionary chapter with its own limitation. 
And one of the limitations is anthropocentrism. In fact, he really talks about the human as the director of evolution to the point that uh, other philosophers are going to push this idea later on, like for instance, David Pierce, with the, uh, uh, with the idea of uh, paradise engineering. Eh? So David Pierce, who is uh, a transhumanist philosopher, the says, well, we should... imperative. Yeah, and he said, we should build paradise for everyone. To the point he said, I would not like to be a gazelle eaten by a lion, so we should re-engineer all animals, also non-human animals, also wild animals which for me is a complete anthropocentric idea of us knowing what is right or wrong for everyone around us, which is also a colonialistic approach that goes beyond the human. So like colonialism was based on the idea that some humans knew better than other humans. So you have, you know, for instance, the English going to India, trying to make British all the, 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 the Hindus, you know. And this is the same idea of us trying to humanize every other species because we know what is better for the everyone. The white else. man's burden becomes the transhumanist's burden. I think I think your that kind of anthropocentric neo-colonialist, uh, uh, how should we say it, a proto-scientific or proto-technological kind of approach that David is is suggesting in the in the hedonistic imperative, you give to it the best possible critique, and not even directly or as an intention perhaps, but at least indirectly, I read it as the one of the best possible critiques uh, of his proposal that I have come across, Pro the best possible critique that I have come across. Uh, and that's why right now I, I kind of translated this in my mind with your help and prodding that it's like, the white man's burden to to sort of sa save the savages from their savagery has now grown to become, you know, the transhumanist's burden to remove all suffering from the cosmos. It sounds very noble and very wise and very generous and very unselfish, but actually if you start slicing it deep, you're going to find all the opposite motivation, self-serving, uh, you know, self-aggrandizing, arrogant, you know, hubristic, uh, all of those previous issues with, that came with colonialism and, you know, the white man's ideas re-emerging right here. And that's why I say it's so important to read your book. Uh, so it's, it's kind of probably the best way to say it is that it's not a, a transhumanist book, it, it's the best non-transhumanist book for transhumanists. How about that? That's awesome. <laughs> I should quote you in the in the next edition. I like your definition. Sure, sure. I say it's the best uh, uh, philosophical post-humanism is the best non-transhumanism. Uh, okay, let me say it again. <laughs> philosophical post-humanism is the best trans. No, okay. <laughs> I'll say it again and this time would be better. So philosophical trans <clears throat> philosophical posthumanism is the best non-transhumanist book for transhumanists and non-transhumanists alike. Period. Awesome. I'm going to make a clip of this and put it on my website. I love it. <laughs> and I love also the, the whole time that you were trying to really find the right word. So the whole clip is like everything. It's not just the final you know, card that is perfect. Everything is rather going to your brain and going through all the elements, which is existence. It's not just one clear shot. It's just all the elements that go into an existing and constant queries. And that's perfect. That's but, awesome. but that's why postmodernism is so hard because there's so many things you have to consider. It's not linear, it's diverse, it's not hierarchical, it's sort of horizontal. 
it's so complex and complicated because everything happens at once almost it's kind of like quantum mechanics really there's spooky action from a distance right and that's why people easily tend to dismiss it for all these reasons but but they lose so much in that process and, and they end up being impoverished that it's kind of sad to watch i think for sure and i would like to add something else because you know can be very intelligent thinking, oh, you know, yeah, no one wants to be the gazelle eaten by the lion. But if we're thinking in those terms, why don't we start with our own habits? Like, you know, I wonder how many people who believe in the paradise engineering are vegetarian or vegan. If you really believe in the dignity of other species, which I absolutely believe, I am a vegetarian and, you know, I'm trying to go into vegan options sometimes and I usually go back into vegetarianism. But the point is that if we are believing in that, that we should give dignity to everyone, why don't we start with our own habits as a species? Because at the moment, we are number one cause of extinction for non-human species. We are in what is called the sixth mass extinction, in which thousands of non-human species get extinct every year because of human action. Now with the pandemic, maybe this year would be a little less because human did less damage, moving less around, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, if we're really talking about paradise engineering, why don't we start with our own habits? In the era of the Anthropocene, it would be a very good idea because we have such an impact on planet Earth. We are defined nowadays as a, as a, a, a geological force, not just as a species anymore. We have an impact on the chaos get back to the Greeks, to the earth. So I think, you know, if we really want to be honest, instead of telling others what to do, let's start by us giving the example, or like through Gandhi, uh, be the example, that be the change that you want to see. If you want to build paradise on this planet for other species, which is, which is a very dignified cause, start by your own habits. So instead of, you know, like engineering lions not to eat gazelle, you start not to eat, uh, you know, like cows or, uh, or, or chickens or fish. Exactly my point. And, and you know, that's another reason why I've been disappointed by many transhumanists who tend to perceive themselves as very progressive uh, kind of lot. Uh, and yet when I ask them, and, and you know, so, so they're all, you know, in support of science, in support of technology, uh, in support of climate change, in, uh, against, you know, species extinction. They want to sort of uh, bring back, back from the dead all the uh, species that have gone extinct before, like the mastodon, the, the passenger pigeon, you name it. So we are this kind of progressive community. Then when I ask them, okay, so, so why don't you stop eating meat? Uh, uh, they say, well, I'm going to wait until, you know, we have petri dishes or lab-grown meat, which is available everywhere. And then I'm going to be vegan while eating meat still. And I'm like, but why do you have to wait to do what's right? Why do you have to wait for something to be invented in the future, whenever it may happen? Uh, instead of doing it right now, since you're totally capable of doing this choice, making this choice right now, and it's not going to cost you anything. Uh, you know, it's just personal discipline and commitment to living your message. Uh, and that's where I get disappointed. And I'm not necessarily so much disappointed of people, but disappointed for people. Because as my previous interviewee here uh, said on my podcast, Matthew Cole, who is a vegan sociology from the Open University in England, every time uh, we use technology to, to, to solve a problem, it's like a missed opportunity for personal growth. It's like uh, the easy way out. It's like instead of us having this as a challenge that would allow us to grow, to be better, we want the easy way out. Oh, give me petri dish and lab-grown meat 
and I'll be vegan. But until you do that, forget it. Even though I agree with, I'm against animal suffering, I'm, I'm for climate change and all of that, but I'm not going to do anything about it. That's been one of my disappointments. You know what, Nicole, it's so interesting you say that because, you know, I remember it was 2010 and I went to this um, interesting uh, transhumanist conference in New York. And I, you know, I'd been in church in my life when I was younger and then I eventually realized that it was not for me. So, I, you know, I didn't really go to church anymore, although there is a beauty in it, of course. But I felt that on summer I was back into church because there was this, this idea that there was this almost nostalgia for the future. So almost like everything, you know, is going to come. It's too bad it's not happening right now. And I felt like there was this idea that technology is going to fix it all. So instead of God, now you have technology who is not called God, it's called technology. So it's okay because it's techno-progressive and it's considered atheist, but it's really serving the role of God. So in the past it was, okay, God knows it all and now it's Google knows it all, you know? So technology is going to take care of everything tomorrow. Too bad we might not be alive, but we make, make it, we may, may, uh, made it through, you know, for instance, cryonics and stuff like that. So the point is that, Hopefully you'll make it to the future. But the point is that there is never the future. There is only always the present. Exactly. And the present is already the future because we are already manifesting the future. And the present is also the past. So that's the sense where it's almost like you're always running towards, you know, the illusion. You're in the desert. You're running towards the water. And the water is keep moving because it's, it's nothing there. It's, it's in, your, in your mind. It's an illusion. So that's what I felt that it was interesting because... It was a movement that, at least at the time, 2010, was still very much proclaimed itself as atheist. But I felt I was in church. It was this idea that technology is going to resolve everything. So don't worry. It's going to take care of it. But wait a couple of years more. You know what? Maybe you know, may, may not see it. But if you get cryonized, maybe you'll make it to the, this amazing future. That amazing future is right now if you want. So that's the point that, you know, it's mindfulness can bring a lot of uh, to the transhumanist movements. There are some people doing interesting work on this. You know, James Hughes is trying to bridge, you know, some of these elements to the transhumanists. But in general, as a movement, it's really based on the illusion of technology as a savior. So you don't have Christ anymore. Now you have Google or technology of science, you know. And it's just, a, you know, you pass the ball to someone else, but keep the ball, keep your agency. Going back to some of the topics that you were mentioning before, you are right now, the, the main tool that you can use is yourself and is your intellectual power, your vision, your habits, the way you exist, you are creating the future. It's you. It's not tomorrow technology taking care of anything. It's you. So that's, you know, when, when it's very important to kind of bridge to, from other fields to learn instead of just going, you know, replace God with technology. Maybe we don't need to replace God with technology. Maybe you can still want to believe in God, believe in God or technology, but believe in yourself because both technology and God are inside of you. It's here, you know, right now. Yeah, that's been part of my message. Uh, so I love technology, but I don't worship it. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, transhumanists and we, in, in those, the, the singularitarian and transhumanist community, there's a lot of worship uh, for technology. And, and people tend to either intentionally or, or unintentionally simply forego the fact that, you know, what used to be God worship may now be simply reoriented to tech worship uh, and AI worship. And, and human enhancement worship that would just like God would come back from the dead and would solve all of our problems and build, build, uh, bring give us an eternal paradise. Uh, now just remove the word God and replace it with technology or artificial general intelligence or what have you. And suddenly we find ourselves in that same paradise where everything we ever wish for is provided. We live in a, in a world of abundance where the future is better than you think. And by the way, we're immortal. Uh, so 
Yeah, so that's, and you know, I have to criticize myself that there was a long period. It took me a few years, uh, uh, you know, before I kind of become self-aware that I myself uh, was doing that. Uh, a few years, perhaps longer than it should have taken me. Uh, so I deserve as much criticism as anyone else uh, because for a number of years I was just simply a conduit for that kind of thinking uh, without much of a contribution or critical analysis from here. Basically, I was just like a, a zealot almost, uh, you know. But you know what, Nicole? I think that's uh, the beauty of existence, you know. And also, I think you were also doing your homework, really learning about everything, because I think when we are in the process of learning, you did it in such a deep way that you took years to interview all these people. You're also in a humble place of just listening to others and see, you know, is the whole idea of, of real education where you're open to ideas. But then it becomes where now existence is asking you to bring your own voice because now you're an expert. And as an expert, you have the responsibility to bring new visions and critiques to what you have learned. So I think that on some level, it's beautiful that you took all these years of just learning from all these people to eventually bring your voice out and bring your critique, which is so deep now, it's so dense and so real and so authentic because you have all this knowledge. So I think that, you know, taking more time gave you the, the opportunity to also really manifest in a vision that is so strong and is so crystal clear. So I would not, you know, blame you because you were completely sincere in everything you've done. Well, sincere is is good, but but uh, I do bear uh, responsibility for my actions at that time and, and the impact uh, thereof and, and the implications thereof. So I may have been sincere and genuine, but uh, being a zealot comes at a cost, external cost for other people, either as a role model or as a direct impact of what have I have done. So that doesn't absolve me from any of my responsibility of, of that period in my life. Um, now, I think we have uh, the, had gone for another diversion again. So let's go back in topic. So how can we connect it back to, to humanism, transhumanism, and posthumanism? Yeah. So let's talk about humanism, because I think that we did a very good job talking about posthumanism first. Then we went into transhumanism with all the layers and genealogies. Ah, something that I should mention about transhumanism is that one of the main sources, of course, after, you know, like... Uh, Aldous Axe, um, Julian Axe is considered say, the father of transhumanism, but as a philosophical uh, tradition, the Enlightenment is considered, and I'm talking about the European Enlightenment, I'm not talking about Buddhist Enlightenment, I'm not talking about Hindu Enlightenment, I'm talking about European Enlightenment, which was this idea of uh, progress of uh, base, humans based on reason, that reason become really the tool, uh, based of course on the Greeks, eh? that's, uh, you know, that's, a play, that's uh, that Aristotle, eh? the, the human as that animal that has reason. But of course, already back to the Greeks, that's, a not, that's not a neutral notion. In fact, reason, that animal with reason is male, is white, is Greek. Uh, women were considered animals with no reason, with feelings. Barbarians were considered animals with no reasons. That's why barbarians were not considered anthropos, etc., etc. Slaves were considered no reason. So the point is that we already have a beginning that is already very hierarchical, is already very dichotomic, and that keeps going back in the history of, uh, for instance, Western philosophy. Now, if you choose the Enlightenment as your starting point, it's uh, very surprising because that was 19th century to be generous, eh? even earlier than that, 18th to 19th century. 
And that came, you know, with the industrial revolution. At the time, that was considered a very good thing. Now we see all the, the ecological damage that was done at the time, all the, the social distress that was caused in places like London, where there were people, you know, working on the industries with children, labor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the fact that people nowadays in the 21st century bring the Enlightenment, European Enlightenment, as the base of their ideas, I find it very problematic. Because usually it's taken as a granted. Oh, great ideas, reason, progress, linear notion of, of history, that's where we come from. Well, that point, starting point, has been criticized for the next, for the following two centuries. Of course, postmodernism did a very good critique of the Enlightenment, but I find it very surprising as a philosopher that people would dare now to bring that as the starting point of a movement. So I think that, you know, that's a very weak point and that's something that transhumanism can definitely improve by realizing the, the, the limits and the issues with European Enlightenment. We come with sexism and racism and ethnocentrism and ecological unawareness and all of these aspects. But of course, those are all the same issues that we see in the transhumanist movement now. Most of the voices are male, are white, come from a very good, you know, social background, um, usually come from Western nations. So we see the same issues because they're based on the same standpoints. So I think that, you know, there are very good ideas in transhumanism. I don't want to just wash out everything just with criticizing it. I think that transhumanism is brave to look at possibilities of the human that are very real. I do believe that, uh, that uh, for something like cryonic is going to work out for some people. Uh, I do believe that uh, radical life extension is going to work out. I do believe that mind uploading is going to work out. I do see that. I see that they are very right in all of these. But in their beliefs, in, in let's say the, 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 the ideology, the ideology, ideology built around it, that's weak and that can be improved. So I think that you know this great vision that they're really seeing in relation to technologies and biotechnologies can be improved by really having a deeper awareness of who we are as existential beings, even beyond human. And of course, to this we can go to humanism. Because on some level, it's easy for us to say, let's just you know, jump after humanism and go into post-transhumanism, anti-humanism, uh, you know, oriented, uh, object-oriented technology, new materialism, you name it. But of course, it's also important to be fair of humanism. So of course, when we talk about humanism, the first before we is, jump into humanism, yes. I just want to add one one part that, and you you don't skip over that in your book, but you do mention it. But many people in transhumanism skip by postulating that transhumanism or originates in the Enlightenment. Is the part they skip is the the the, the impact of Russian cosmism, uh, usually, which is you know highly kind of unique blend of. Uh, Eastern Orthodox Russian Christianity and kind of the budging scientific progress of the 18th century and kind of like sort of like lit Russian literally movements of, of the 18th century, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, all the other ones. So it's like a, this strange, unique Russian mixture uh, that looks into the cosmos in some ways and yet carries all this baggage of, of, you know, Russian Orthodox Christianity and, and other specific, even Russian paganism uh, and, and so on and so on. And that's an omission that comes at a cost uh, of awareness uh, and the potential for, for all those issues that we've already touched upon. So now that this is a way to the side, maybe we can go on finally to humanism. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I was really uh, happy to, uh, to get to know a lot of cosmists who are based in New York because there is a whole movement in New York. So we had some uh, events that we organized together. So I would like to say hi to all the cosmists who are in, uh, in New York, based in New York. That's the one that I you know, got to know. And there, there is also a very good documentary. I think it's called Stairways to Heaven or something like that, which is about Russian cosmists. Yeah. And about Fedorov. So that's something yeah. that if you're not familiar, people, of course you are, but the people who are watching this, if you're not familiar, it's a good introduction. And it's also bring that discussion to nowadays because it's still a movement that is still very much alive, not only in Russia. So I thought that, and there is also a very good book um, by one colleague from Harvard. She just published a book about Russian cosmos. Uh, so anyway, there is a, very, a lot of literature and it's very interesting ideas out there. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Nicola, for bringing this to the conversation. Um, yeah, so that's uh, we can talk about humanism. So when we're talking about humanism, it's kind of easy for us to say, okay, let's just, you know, like jump after humanism, you know, and uh, talk about non-human animals and technological beings, et cetera, et cetera. But we also have to, first of all, ask us a couple of questions. The first one is what do we mean by humanism? And that's already a big question because already in the Western canon, you have different approaches there. For instance, Maybe Heidegger, we should start even smaller. What is human? Because, you know, I have been asking this question since the very beginning of my podcast. That's 270 episodes now for 11 years. Uh, and I think your book is the only book that went into that bravely and deeply and profoundly and gave by far the best answer uh, I've had so far. Uh, and even people like, you know, Dr. Hiroshi Ishiguro from the University of Osaka, he said the reason why he's building robots is to find out the meaning of what it is to be human. And yet I asked him, okay, you've been doing that for 35 years. What's the answer? And the best he could master was, well, actually, the meaning of being human is constantly changing. That's the best he could come up with, right? But you go into the whole idea, the etymology of the word, the past meaning, the present meaning, the implications, the baggage, the costs, the pros and the cons of all of that in your book, which is actually commendable. It's very well done and it's a must read for every, anyone and everyone. So you're very well positioned perhaps to start us off even one step lower than humanism with just what is human. Of course. Thank you so much, Nicola. Yeah, so actually there is, so my book is divided in three parts and the second part is all about what does it mean to be human? So I started being, uh, let's say, a classic scholar. I started yeah, with the etymology of the notion, which come from humanus, humana, humanum, which come from Latin. Uh, and already in ancient Rome, there was a whole kind of, a lot of discussion about what is the etymology of humanus. So there were different uh, ideas. One that was uh, mostly accepted, but with some criticism, is that comes from humus, which humus means uh, um, the earth, where the, uh, the crops can grow, the humus, eh? the, the, the fertile earth. Uh, so some people, you know, would criticize that because everything comes from the humus anyway, all kinds of animals. So there was some discussion about what really, you know, where does humanus, uh, humana, humanum come from already back in ancient Rome. But the concept that went with homo uh, is actually based on anthropos. And why is that? We, okay, anthropos come from Greek. Eh? Homo is Latin. Now, the ancient Romans were very fascinated by the Greeks. So, of course, eventually the Greek land with all the Greek polis were actually uh, uh, invaded by Romans and became part of the Roman Empire. 
And they stayed long after part of the Byzantium. So they stayed long, much longer than Rome, actually, in the Roman Empire, which became the Eastern part. Um, but the, the Greeks itself, they themselves, had you know, a whole history of, uh, of literature, of uh, philosophy. So the Romans, when they became the main power of uh, that, that part of the earth, they, uh, they were really fascinated by the Greeks. So, for instance, you have, uh, you know, many Romans started, uh, who studied Stoicism, uh, who, who studied uh, the, the, the Cynic tradition. So they were really, really uh, uh, influenced by the Greeks. Uh, now, uh, for instance, Cicero, who was a very famous uh, uh, orator, uh, writer, and also philosopher, uh, is one of those philosophers, Roman philosophers, who use a lot the notion of homo. Uh, and uh, all these people in ancient Rome who started to use the, the term homo, uh, another one, for instance, is uh, uh, the, the, the term was used in different ways, uh, but they were based on the notion of anthropos, which is the Greek term. Now, they based it on the notion of, based on the fact that anthropos, which simply means human in Greek, is the one who has paideia. Paideia in Greek means education, but it's a specific type of education, is the Greek education. So in fact, so now from the Roman homo, you have to jump to the Greeks because the notion of the homo was based on the notion of the Greek anthropos. Once you jump to the Greek, in fact, something like anthropology comes from anthropos, uh, you know, anthropocentrism comes from anthropos. So once you start to look into the notion of anthropos, you find out something very interesting. In fact, for the ancient Greeks, uh, anthropos was meant human, but it didn't mean all the humans that we today would consider humans. In fact, it meant the humans, first of all, who were beings who were not divine. So for instance, you could not be Zeus or you could not be Minerva, you could not be any of the god and goddesses of the Greek ancient uh, pan uh, pantheon. They had a lot of, uh, they were polytheistic societies, so they had a lot of god and goddesses. So you could not be those. You could not be a semi-divine being either. So the human could not be divine. The human could not be non-human animals. So you could not be a dog or a cat. And on the, those terms, we can still kind of see a reference to our current notion of the human. If you look at the dictionary, that's still a way the human is defined. But the third layer may come to surprise to some of us. In fact, to be anthropos, you could not be barbarian. Who was barbarian? Anyone who did not speak Greek. For instance, Persian, who had an incredible civilization. For instance, Egyptian, and the Greek loved the Egyptians. A lot of them went to study in Egypt, including Plato, who eventually traveled to Egypt to study there. So they had a high esteem of Egyptian, of, uh, Egyptian culture, but the Greek was a very ethnocentric society. So you had to speak Greek. You had to be part of the paideia, of the education system. So now we are even talking about an even more restricted group of people. So anyone else who spoke or came from other cultures, for instance, Phoenicians, were not considered anthropos, were barbarians. Now, these elements come back in the history of uh, not only Western civilization, but definitely Western civilization, to the point of, I'm based in the US, some years ago, with some of the wars that the US started with some countries, the, 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 the government was using this term of, as the civilized US are going to barbarian countries like Iran, on Iraq at the time to make them civilized. So this notion of being civilized and bringing the good uh, tool of democracy to the barbarian is still used nowadays in the same ways that the Greek did at the time. 
In fact, the Greeks became a, you know, a, a cultural reference for a lot of uh, Western nations and not only. Now, all of this is not just history, as some people say, oh, let's just jump to the future. This is right now our reality because many people died in the name of democracy, in the name of civilization, in the name of being considered barbarians. Of course, the reason were many other reasons like oil and many other uh, political reasons and, and economic power. So it's very important to realize that the past is not just the past. This past is the, is the present and is the future if we are not aware of that. If we are not aware of all of these, we are going to bring these to the future. That's why to be a real post-human or a real transhuman means to really be constantly querying all of these. Like, I like the Socratic method. You know, Socrates has its own limits, but it's beautiful being able to quest everything and anything, taking nothing for granted, even technology. Technology cannot be taken for granted or becoming the next divine element that is really going against some of the transhumanist ideas. So to this, we can, if you want, go into the notion of humanism. Should we? Sure, yeah. And, and it brings me also to awareness that you're also one of the very few people who actually defines the term technology. Uh, you know, most other books, uh, not, not most, like almost all other books in the field never even bother to define what technology actually stands for. And while you do define it a little bit different in terms of origins that I like to define it, uh, you know, you do you do that very well. Uh, and, and you also define ethics too, by the way. Uh, actually, that's where we had the bigger difference was like uh, in the definition of how we, or, or the origin of, of whether it's ethos or ethicos, that's the origin of ethics. But anyway, so should we mention those there too? or or? Sure, we can. Um, okay, let's talk about the origin of technology and ethics, and then we go back to humanism. So with technology, I, um, I also, by the way, I have to say that I am in debt as a scholar to Heidegger, who as a person was not a very nice person. He was a convinced Nazi, he was sexist, he was uh, all these other things, but he was also a very bright intellectual mind. And that's when, you know, as academics, we, we can learn from everyone, even from people who are not, you know, the ideal you know, like existential beings, you know. So Heidegger, I always want to say that we cannot just forget what he did as a human being. You know, he was a Nazi supporter. He was really not loyal to anyone who helped him in any way. And when I say loyal, I just mean generous and kind. For instance, to his own teacher, who was uh, who was a Jew, so he was not supportive of, you know, he was, he was a convinced Nazi to the point that until he died, after he died, they found that he was still uh, uh, renewing his affiliation to the Nazi party. So he was a convinced Nazi. He was sexist. He was uh, having a sexual affair with his students, completely unethical. So as a person, Heidegger, yeah, not the best of the best. But to be fair, but as a philosopher, a very, very deep refined mind. And in that, uh, you know, I know that there are some people who try to teach Heidegger. There is a whole... Uh, there is a whole uh, article that uh, it's entitled How to Teach Heidegger Without Heidegger. So, you know, teaching Heidegger this through all these other people that came after him. And for me as a scholar, I think that it's, I think it's wrong because it's kind of like trying to erase in history. I think that it's very important to say who he was. And also it is important to say that Nietzsche was not a Nazi. And a lot of people get confused because Nietzsche was used by the Nazi propaganda, but Nietzsche himself was a total European mind. He was 
shocked by seeing you know, the waves of uh, hate against you know the Jewish people in, in in Germany. He left Germany. He went to other cu- countries. He lived in France, in Italy before the European, much before the European Union. He was a complete uh, poly, uh, uh, you know, like a cultural uh, person who even tried to study the Persian uh, Zarathustra. Uh, the, he tried to study you know like Hindu scripture. He was really not a Western centric person, but. His sister was a convinced Nazi, and she uh, really rephrased some of his work, and she pretty much sold it to the Nazis, who eventually made him the Nazi uh, philosopher. So very important to say that Nietzsche was not a Nazi in any way. Actually, he died before the whole Nazi uh, political party became what it was. The sister wasn't. The sister was Elizabeth. Uh, Anyway, going back to Heidegger. So Heidegger is a very good scholar in the traditional sense of a classicist, and he does this a lot, you know, so whenever he, for instance, he had this beautiful uh, work that is, it takes a lot of time to digest, and is one of those not easy re- readings, eh? uh, which is, uh, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his, he has a whole essay on technology, what is technology, and he, he starts with questioning, because he says, okay, this is what the diction, pretty much, he doesn't say the diction, but this is the normal definition of technology, and he gives normal definition of te- technology, and he said, that's not wrong. But is that all the technology is, like a human activity? And, uh, and then he goes into the Greeks, because the term itself comes from Greek. Uh, in fact, comes from techne plus logos. Logos, it's a very easy translation, like say discussion on, you know, like uh, that's why uh, anthropology, philosophy, uh, anthropology, logos. Eh? Logos is the discussion on, anthrop- uh, in this case, techne, technology, eh? the discussion tech. Or a conversation. Technology. Or a conversation. Now, it's very interesting what he says, and I learned a lot from Heidegger in this, because he says, at the time, when we go back to the Greeks, the term techne, when you read in context, which is very important, not to decontextualize, when you read the term techne in context, in ancient Greek literature, you find techne uh, always connected to these other two terms. One is episteme, which is not surprising. In fact, episteme, and I'm giving the Greek trans, uh, pronunciation. In, in, in English, it would be episteme. Eh? But I'm, I'm reading in, uh, in Greek the, uh, the, the way it is pronounced, episteme. Now, episteme in uh, Greek means science. So for us, as a society, it's not so much surprising to see techne connected to science. In fact, for instance, there is a whole field of study called Science and Technology Studies, which is STS. Uh, and many people, even the transhumanist movement, see you know, the real tool for enhance the human in science and technology. Eh? They always connect the two of them. But the third one come to us as a society as a big surprise. The third one is poiesis. Now, what does poiesis mean? In order to understand what poiesis means, we can look at the etymology of poiesis itself or a term that we use in our society, which is, for instance, poetry. Now, uh, the best way to define poiesis is an act of creativity. For instance, when you write a poem, you start without knowing what you're going to be writing, and you end in a way that often surprises you. Or when you start, uh, for instance, you have a, a gem, musical gem, and there is someone playing a saxophone, some playing, playing a sitar, someone playing the darbuka, and someone playing the piano. They are jamming, so they're not reading script, script to, uh, uh, scriptures. They don't, they're not reading music, they are jamming. They don't know what kind of music is going to come out. But often the music comes out as a surprise. Furthermore, nature 
is also poiesis. And that's in this Heidegger gives us a beautiful example of the flower blooming. And from the bloom to the full flower, the big surprise of the creation, the, not creation in the theological Christian way, the creativity of existence. That's also an act of poiesis. And actually, he says, in nature, fuses, that's the best act of poiesis, and the, the, the nature, and the, 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 the poiesis of nature. So in that sense, the Greeks would see techne, which at the time was considered as handcrafts, um, but also, for instance, uh, uh, in relation to uh, epistemic, which is science, and poiesis, which is the act, act of cre creativity, full creativity. Now, we don't think in the terms of science and technology. On some level, transhumanism does. In that sense, I'm really, uh, you know, see a lot of power in, in the transhumanist thinkers. Uh, but as a society, if you say, I'm an artist, and they say what you do, and they say, I'm a cyberneticist, some people would be very confused. Say, okay, you say an artist, but you say you are a coder, for instance, or you're a cyberneticist. But the Greeks would not be confused because they know that technology is an act of creativity. It's not just uh, something that is, uh, that is, uh, uh, that you know what's going to come. It's, let's say the technology is something that is going to bring unseen uh, possibilities. In that sense, according to Heidegger, the highest danger that we can have as a society, and we are in the danger because we don't see the aspect of poiesis in technology, but the, the highest uh, danger we can be is not AI takeover. Of course, he did, he did not use the term AI takeover because at the time it was not part of the you know, public discussion. But according to him, the highest danger is forgetting the ontological power of technology so that we cannot master technology. We will never master technology because technology is also an act of poiesis. There is this element of technology that cannot be controlled, and that's existence because we cannot control fully our life. There is this element of mystery in our existence. We don't even know who we are at the very end. If we try to think of existence through reason, we're going to go very unsuccessful because we cannot come with a final answer. The only way to take all of this is maybe cosmic game or art or, you know, uh, accepting the great mystery of existence. Now, technology is part of this. Technology is poiesis and has ontological power in the sense that we can never just master technology. Technology is bringing uh, some ontological manifestations that are always going to come as a surprise. Even right now, the way we are existing right now, having this conversation, would have been thought as impossible 100 years ago. If I told one hundred years ago to my ancestors, you to your ancestors, or us to all of our ancestors, because we're all connected, that one hundred years from now we would be on a screen, someone based in Canada, the other in New York, seeing themselves in these virtual bodies, in this ethereal sphere of you know, like of the uh, electronic uh, uh, rays connecting through the network of satellites out of space, it was it would be like a mystical dream. Uh, and uh, in that sense, mysticism always get it. <laughs> Mystics are the only ones who always get it, you know, no matter which era they are, they always get it. Like that's, the mystic visions, I think, are the only accurate portrait of reality. But going back to technology is not something we are just using, it's not just a tool, it's changing everything about everything. It's even, it's even going to change our bodies. In fact, I like in this sense uh, uh, the, the movie um, from uh, The Little Robot, uh, uh, what's the name? Wally. Wally. Because Wally portrays these humans, and without judgment, they just portray these humans, you know, some centuries from now, or even more, 
that are, you know, very short legs, very short arms, you know, pretty fat because they are pretty much always on some technological devices. They don't move at all anymore. And that's very possible if we keep going with this uh, very uh, Western approach to technology in which we are seeing uh, the theater. This, this technology we're using, back to the Greeks, is the theater. Everyone sits around to look at the center. That's where the, the, the play goes on. The theater, everything, every perspective, look at the center. Like me, I'm looking at you because if I look in this way, I cannot really see you. If I look this way, I cannot see you. If I look this way, I cannot see you. I have to look this way is the Greek theater in which is based the whole uh, perspective of technology. But it could be very different. I could have a technology that in which you are, uh, you know, uh, maybe projected in all the walls in this room and I could move around and look at you everywhere, every perspective. Technology is not just something we are using. It's something that is changing everything about it, everything we think about ourselves, even the way our bodies work, and even the disease that our bodies has. A lot of people now start to have a lot of issues with their fingers, you know, like heart rate, because we use a lot, you know, like we don't move so much, we use a lot of screens. So in that sense, going back to technology, very important, the work of Heidegger to really underline these elements that we totally forgot in our society the power of poiesis that is part of the technology from the very beginning if we go to the Greek, to the Greek tradition. So Francesca, my worst fears have been realized today. <laughs> I love talking to you so much and we barely managed to go to somewhere like one third at best maybe one half of your book and we're out of time. So I unfortunately, uh, on the other hand, on the upside, I think this is a good place for us to stop. And then I would use this as an excuse and, and as, an, as an opportunity to, in time, come back and pick up from this point onwards. But in the meantime, where can people find more about you and your work if they choose to follow you and want to find out more about you and your work, which I highly recommend myself? Thank you so much, Nicola. Okay, so it's very easy to find me. I have a website called theposthuman.org and there is a way to contact me through the website. You can always follow me. At the moment, uh, all of my talks are actually virtual, so everyone can connect online and I have a lot of talks coming up in the next couple of months. We also have a beautiful global posthuman network, uh, which is posthumans.org. We, we groups uh, in many different continents. Uh, we have the Indian Posthumanist Network. We have the Latin American Posthuman Network. We have the Indian uh, Chinese Forum, uh, the Posthuman Chinese Forum. We have a lot of different Italian uh, Posthuman Network. We have a lot of networks all over. And uh, we have a blog if people want to propose uh, some uh, entries. We are open to all nuances of the posthuman, as I am more of a posthumanist, but I always stress the importance of being always in dialogue with all the people coming from different perspectives. So post, transhumanist, anti-human, everyone is welcome to share their views. And I would also like to say something because the people who've been following us today, they might still say, come on, you talk so much about humanism, but you have not even you know, addressed it at the end of the conversation. So can I take three minutes to talk about humanism? Look, you can take as much as you want. I want to have you here for hours, but I know you're on time schedule. So yes, take as much as you want. All right. Well, I just want to say something about humanism because I, you know, we kept going back and say, okay, we we'll talk about it later, later, later. And then it's almost like, you know, always waiting for the answer and it never comes. It's kind so of like an invitation for people to actually open your book. 
That's true. That's it's true. like a cliffhanger, you know. That's true. Well, let's let's give a very brief uh, talk about humanism, and then let's uh, redirect to the book. But about humanism, I would like to say this because there are some people who say, "Well, why do you need posthumanism? Can we just be, uh, for, you know, readdressing a new humanism, which is another approach, which is not really under the umbrella of the posthuman, but she, it's uh, it's happening and new humanism." I see an issue with that. Okay, so. I don't see an issue with humanism historically, because historically speaking, it was very important for the humanism. In fact, for instance, there are many, of course, many traditions you can trace here. There is Confucian uh, uh, there is Confucian humanism, there is Roman humanism. And often when we're talking at least about the Western tradition, people refer to Renaissance humanism. And at the time, it was very important to have humanism because it was going after a theocentric society. So you had God as you, you really, you know, the the source of everything that was the creator. We're talking about the Christian tradition here. And now you have humanism and you have people like Pico della Mirandola and all kinds of thinkers, uh, Lorenzo de Medici saying, well, but they were Christian, by the way. It's not that they were going against Christianity, but they were taking a different take on Christianity. Uh, they were interested in Gnostic Christianity. They were interested in all the texts that were actually destroyed in many uh, millennia of a specific type of Christianity. Uh, and they were saying, well, we are creatures of God, which means that we are also divine. So we, which is also a very interesting connection in connection to transhumanism. To Mormon transhumanism in particular, perhaps. Absolutely. So, you know, when we're talking about humanism, it's very important to recognize the importance of this humanistic paradigm shift during the Renaissance. But it, by the way, the term humanism came 200 years later. Uh, by a German scholar, but, you know, that defines what was happening at the time, was really bringing the human at the center. And, of course, uh, the work of Leonardo da Vinci is very interesting and having, you know, the human at the center of the cosmos. Of course, this human is, is a male, is white, and it's also, we are also during the colonialism. Uh, they, we have uh, the Americas, which were uh, discovered between the Tacoma by Europeans at the time, which with whole discussion of are these Native American humans or not, uh, which was a real discussion by humanists at the time, to the point that someone like Sepulveda in Spain, uh, 16th century, was saying, no, they're not. And he was a humanist. Uh, and someone like Bartolome de la Casa, who was not a humanist, but was a very honest Christian, uh, he was saying, no, they are not only human, but they are very kind people, and we should learn a lot from them. So we have to realize that, uh, you know, also humanism is not one but many. And during the Renaissance, this shift that happened from seeing the humans just as created by God, but as the less one, you know, in the, in the scalature, in the Gretchen of being, humans are, uh, you know, like there is God, and then there is the angels, and then there are the human, and... and so in on. the hierarchy of being. Exactly. But they are not, they are not there. They are not, part, they are not God. Now, you have a different take of Renaissance humanists who are still Christian, but they say, we are created in the image of God. We are divine as ourselves. And we need to be, we, are, we need to go in the, the we need to perfect ourselves as the divine beings that we are. So there is a shift. We have the human now at the center. Now, this is very interesting, but it comes with some limits, which is, for me, is the most obvious is anthropocentrism. So, you know, when people are saying, so what's wrong with humanism? <laughs> there is something really for me now that we are in the Anthropocene, seeing the ecological devastation that we are created, all the issues that we as a species have because of our anthropocentric behavior, saying that we can still adopt humanism is, uh, for us, is deadly. Uh, we actually are the uh, number one reason uh, for which we can actually get extinct. So, you know, it's not anymore lions eating us or anything. We 
are number one reason for which we may get extinct. One is anthropocentrism for me. One of the reasons why we may get extinct is going on with our anthropocentric habits. So it's very important to really realize that humanism, according to uh, a vision that is not just thinking of me, 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 it's no longer an option. We have to see us as part of a globe. We are many, not just humans. As humans, we are many, but as a species, we are many. We need to recognize the balance of existence. We cannot just keep... We cannot cut no more trees. Trees are bringing us oxygen. There is, there are, you know, when every time I, I, and that unfortunately in the States is very much the case. You go to an area and you see a whole area which has been abandoned, completely, you know, devastated, like no one lives there, totally abandoned. You go 10 minutes later uh, in a car or a bus or a train, and you see they are building all these new buildings, cutting down trees. To me, a law that we should place at the global level is that you cannot build any buildings if you have, you know, in your ray of 100 kilometers or miles, any abandoned areas. You need to restore them first. We cannot cut trees down anymore. We cannot create more ecological distress to this planet. We are the planet. The planet is our body. We, it's almost like, you know, that's why cancer is so common in us uh, now as a species, because it's the same idea as one part of the body thinking that that's just in separation from everything else, but the cancer eventually killed the whole human body. So we don't want to behave that way. We need to realize that we are part of a bigger picture in which we are, I include technology. Technology also should be recognized in its, uh, uh, in its existential dignity. And of course, a robot like Sophia is a great example of that because it is a robot that is speaking a different language. It's speaking a language of interconnectedness and of mindfulness and of, uh, of, of real existential awareness. So I think that, uh, yes, it's very important to realize that the human in uh, interrelation with ecology and technology in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's kind of the reasons why I have been sort of abandoning the, the, the label of transhumanism myself is because whether you call it humanism or whether you call it transhumanism, and we've already discussed that that dichotomy or distinction may be a false one, uh, it, may, it may be not only damaging but ultimately suicidal. Uh, and uh, the, that, but that's the crux of the problem. That until you recognize that inherent anthropocentrism embedded deeply into humanism slash transhumanism, until you recognize that fact, you are still on that course. And to to course correct, you have to first go beyond. You know, it may be impossible to abandon completely that kind of. Uh, human centrism, but at least you have to be cognizant of it, aware of it, and go beyond it uh, as the first step towards any kind of long-term resolution of, of these issues. Uh, and, and that's what's kind of pushed me away to abandon it. So you, you, you said that very well, and it's very well explained in your book. And Nicola, you know, talking about this, it's very interesting that humanism is not really dismissed by transhumanism. In fact, a lot of people say, well, it's not really transhumanism, it's an ultra-humanism, because the main goal is human enhancement. It's not global, whatever, coexistence, or is human enhancement. That's why the platform that is now the main point where people maybe, well, I'm sure a lot of people uh, connecting us with us uh, in this video know about it, but the main online platform is Humanity Plus for transhumanism, is enhancing the human. So in that sense, it's very much of a humanistic endeavor. So I don't think that 
any transhumanist would have anything wrong to say about humanism. It's, the idea is more expanding that idea to include, you know, uh, emerging technologies as a, a re-envisioning of the human. So in that sense, it's very much on the path of humanism. And that's, like you said, is suicidal. And in that sense, while it's thinking it's progressive, it's actually very conservative. While it's thinking it's bringing a change, it's actually reinforcing the status quo. That's the most paradoxical and dangerous part of it, by the way, that it is possessing or it's posing as, as kind of liberation, uh, kind of uh, progressive kind of freedom-bringing movement, but it's actually conservative uh, power structure, status quo, reinforcing uh, same old, same old in a way, which has brought us to where we are and which we cannot uh, address our current and future problems if we don't come out beyond of. Uh, so, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, Francesca, we've touched, uh, as I said, on the first one third, maybe one half at best of your book. I hope people will take that as an invitation to go and actually put the time and the effort to read the rest of it. And then go back and read it again. I would invite them. Uh, but how do you want to send us home? Like, what's the most important message that you want to send us with today? For the time to... being that, you know, people are going to spend from now until our next time we're going to have to continue this conversation. First of all, Nicola, I want to thank you so much for being such an honest, uh, uh, visionary and, uh, and um, rigorous uh, member of our species, because uh, we are connected not only to the globe, but as a species, we are a wave of change. We are changing the planet itself. And I think that the more we realize how much power we have in, in this existence, the more we can really be precise about uh, what aspects we need to change. It is not just about uh, our bodies. It's not just about being able to live 1,000 years. If we live 1,000 years the way we live now, who cares about that? Without being aware, constantly looking for the next thing. You know, 100 years probably will be not, uh, 1,000 years will be probably not enough. And then it's 2,000 years. And then it's like this idea of that you are never there. You are here. That's it. This is the moment of full power because that's the moment of existential manifestation. So I would like to thank all the people who are watching this to really be in, uh, um, be in the change that you want to see. And I also would like to maybe making a call to be completely honest to yourself. If something doesn't, doesn't sound right, look into that. Don't just accept it because other transhumanists say it's right or other posthumanists say it's right or because me or Nicola says it's right. Just look into yourself. Looking deep into yourself, looking so deep into yourself at, until it's clear. It may take years, like Nicola was mentioning, but do it because that's the only thing you can do in your life. Be completely honest to you because the perspective that you're bringing to you, you're bringing it to everyone else. A lot of, uh, a lot of people are talking that we have a consciousness as a species. So your consciousness of just being, you know, drunk by ideas of others, you're not helping anyone. But being, you know, like, uh, for instance, Nicola said, you can take your time to really understand what other people are saying. And that's very important because if you're jump, just in, in, a, in a field without knowing, you're just creating, creating more confusion and that's not helping anyone. And unfortunately, too many, too many people do that. But if you take your time, take your passions, realize what you need to understand, but be, be honest to yourself, be kind to yourself and don't just you know, accept whatever comes, even if it sounds with like a fashionable new term like posthumanism or transhumanism. And I'm including myself into the conversation. I'm not 
You are not the people who are watching this. And am I saying things that maybe you, you know, maybe you can criticize? And I would love to hear that. Because to me, philosophy is real, real dialogue. And it's not just Socrates. Of course, Socrates is a great example of that. But the whole Upanishads are based on, on, uh, on, the, on, on dialogue. So the Indian tradition, the Chinese tradition, the, you know, the whole ancient philosophy were based on the dialogue with others. Because you are not in your little bi- bubble. You are part of everything else. So I would like to thank all the people who are brave enough to really look into themselves and not just accept ideas because they are given by the president of this nation or the, the founder of that ideas or the author of that book or whatever. That you listen to all of these, you learn from all of these, you're in dialogue with all, but in the end you need to be honest to what you really understand and then bring that voice out. Like the Buddha went so much into asceticism and then he went out of the forest and taught because he knew that he was part of a larger picture. So once you take your time, take your time, take your time. But once you take your time, be uh, generous with your ideas, with your critiques. Critique my book, critique Nicola's podcast, critique anything you do, but do it with kindness, do it with awareness, do it knowing that everyone is is doing their best. So I think that just going into, you know, fight with, uh, you know, insulting each other, that is not bringing anything. It's just bringing more war and more anger, and that's not helping. But if you understand, you know, other people's ideas, bring layers of understanding to them and do it with kindness, but do it with, re- with rigor and do it with full existential honesty. Wow. And if I'm to add just one thing, I would invite also people to kind of like put their intellectual gym clothes warm up their intellectual muscles and be ready to break some intellectual sweat to actually work for it, to actually struggle and maybe even suffer a little bit for it. Uh, Because if they're just comfortable, if they're in their zone of comfort, uh, there's hardly any progress ever if you're just comfy. Uh, You have to struggle, maybe you have to suffer. Most certainly, I think you would have to suffer at least a little bit so that you go beyond your zone of comfort and beyond the the past possible into the new impossible, which becomes the current possible. Uh, But all that aside, Francesca Ferrando, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Nicola. It's been such an honor to be talking to you. Such a pleasure. You're such a bright mind of our century. And I know that this is the first of many other things, many other interviews, maybe books together, projects together. I, it was such, such a great honor to, to be in a dialogue with you. Thank you infinitely. My pleasure entirely. Thank you. I would actually steal a lot or borrow, I should say, from the end of your book towards the end of the book that I'm going to start writing in about three or four weeks. Uh, because I was just missing that last part as an idea. And I think I got all of it from after reading your book. So that's kind of like was the, the final missing piece, perhaps. Uh, and so thank you for that in advance. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm very, very honored and joyful. <laughs> if you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 